Hey everybody, this is Ray Telsh and this is episode 68 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie selected specifically by our guest that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Hope everyone is having a great week out there. Uh, It's hard to believe we've been in uh, this COVID world for over a year right now. There are many ways uh, the pandemic impacted our lives. And one of those, it's just a small thing, but it's an interesting thing, which is I started a web feud with uh, a host of another podcast, uh, Adam Thomas, who's been on this podcast before, uh, a little over a year ago. And we, we, we kind of agreed that we were just going to be each other's nemeses and, and we were taking pot shots at each other through social media and making little jabs at each other on our podcasts and that kind of stuff. And, and then the pandemic happened. <laughs> it kind of seemed silly to have this artificial rivalry anyway, um, which I'm glad about because Adam is a great guy. Uh, he's been on the podcast before and he returns this week for another appearance. And I, I kind of wonder in an alternate universe what that appearance might have been like had the two of us kept up that level of aggression with each other and pretended to be uh, nemeses against each other. But we didn't uh, because the world doesn't need that kind of negativity and and uh, instead, Adam and I are, are I, I feel like, good friends. Uh, and we ended up having yet another great conversation. Uh, last time he was on the show, we talked about Dark City, a movie that I loved and thought was a perfect uh, pick for the, the show because so many people had not seen it. This time he picks another science fiction movie, 2005's The Jacket, which not only had I not seen, but it's another one of those instances where I hadn't even heard of the movie. And I wish I had seen this movie sooner. We get into some wonderful conversations about the jacket and about several other movies, you know, because we do go off on tangents as usual. But uh, I implore you to check out this movie. It is a fantastic film. uh, And the less you know about it, the better. It's one that I went into completely blind, which we talk about in the episode. And I think I enjoyed it more for not having any preconceived notions about it. So I, I encourage you to go see it. But if you don't want to check it out, then we have this wonderful conversation that I invite you to listen to. Uh, so this is Adam Thomas's return to the show. Great time had by all. Can't wait for him to come back on the show again. Uh, but here we go with 2005's The Jacket. I just listened to your Patreon bonus uh, top 10 robot list. Yeah. Yeah. That, I should think of it. that was a hell of an endeavor. Yeah, it was different, man. It, it was actually really hard to do. I'm sure. Was, I'm sure. Yeah, it was incredibly difficult. Once we set down ground rules and stuff, then it, it not only whittled it down, but it also made us open it up to other avenues we might not have been looking at before. So it was like, it was really weird. Yeah, and I, I, it's funny because it, I mean, he called it, but uh, I, as soon as it was announced, and then you guys explained in the episode the parameters and stuff, I was like, I know what Thomas, I mean, I know what Thomas is at number one is. Like, I, I knew yeah. it right away. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I yours, I, I couldn't get a read on, but you had some really interesting choices in your list. I, I really dug it. I, it just showed me how you and I have not talked film enough for me to really get a sense of your tastes and yet at the same time it was like i need to talk movies more with adam because he knows his shit <laughs> yeah i'm always down for that man yeah thomas didn't expect mine either he did not think i was going to do uh the man in black from westworld at number one yeah he thought it was going to be roy batty which it was until i really started thinking about it he's technically not a robot yeah and the fact that you explained that in the episode i thought that that's really um 
like it's true like i i hadn't yeah. thought of that but as soon as you started explaining you know there's not a cog or a spring in there it's like oh yeah there's not and by your rules that doesn't count right yeah then he got mad at me because i cheated and I <laughs> well you did but i wouldn't yeah, have gotten mad at that cheat it was it was a minor <laughs> cheat yeah it's a minor minor they're a package deal <laughs> so what other uh what, what movies have you been watching lately like not not necessarily for the podcast but just in general what what kind of things have you been watching i've been trying to catch up on a lot of stuff i haven't seen before uh either, you know from whenever i can uh like my brother lets me use his hbo max account so i've been all the new ones that have come out i've seen all those so far and then uh just random like horror movies i might not have seen before like i just watched uh underwater with Kristen stewart oh yeah okay that was really actually quite phenomenal. So let me let me ask. It's not the movie we're discussing today, but the movie we're discussing today is kind of a psychological thriller. Did you watch The Little Things, the new Denzel Washington one? No, I didn't. I did. Okay. My brother did, and he said it was. He's like, it was all right. He's like, yeah. it's entertaining. So I'm like, ah, I don't know if I want to devote myself to over two hours or something. That's that's all right. Yeah, I, I was telling uh, my girlfriend about it last night that like Denzel is awesome. I'm I'm really to the point where yeah. I'll watch him read a menu. Like he's just oh, yeah. he just oh, knows how to perform. Yeah. And um, Rami Malek is really good in it. And I just personally, I just don't like Jared Leto, but that's okay because you're not supposed to like his character in that thing anyway. So I can't stand that motherfucker. And yet for some reason, every time I'm like, he was pretty good in this, and yet I hate him. But most of the things I see him, I'm like, oh yeah, he did pretty good. Yeah, he he's just that guy. Yeah, even in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, when he shows up in that, I'm like, oh, he's actually pretty good in this. Yeah, but I don't, I just, I don't know what it is about him. I just, I, I think it's the whole Joker thing. He's, I honestly do. He's a, it's exactly what it is. He's a douchebag. <laughs> All this, you know, kind of childish and and miserable behavior under the guise of being method actor, and it's like that doesn't exactly. really. Work. No, that doesn't count. Daniel Day-Lewis isn't out there sending people skinned raccoons. Getting <laughs> some shit, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> so I, you, you said you're, you're catching up on a lot of stuff you haven't seen. That's actually a question I added since the last time you've been on the show, which is, you know, the podcast is called Have Not Seen This. We're talking about movies we're surprised other people haven't seen or we want to encourage other people to see. What are your Have Not Seen This movies? What are movies you have not seen that other people get really surprised about and give you a hard time about? Uh, Whiplash. I haven't seen Whiplash. Okay, all right. Um, Thomas gives me shit over that all the time for some reason. Um, <laughs> I've never seen. Oh man, there's a lot that I have seen. Um, <laughs> I've never seen The Godfather Three. You're not missing much. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I kind of stayed away from it. Didn't really, uh, didn't really care too much to see it. Man, that that's. Honestly, off the top of my head, that's the ones I can think of the most when I say them. People are like, really? Yeah. That's, well, that's you're, I mean, you're a pretty well-versed movie guy, so that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, I try to watch everything that is either deemed important or that looks interesting or like even my friends like recommend. I, I usually try to catch them. Sometimes they just fall by the wayside, but I try. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, it, it helps when you have a movie podcast, you do tend to be a little more versed in film. Um, and this isn't the, the one we're talking about today. I kind of find interesting because you put this up as a contender for your own podcast. And like you like the last time you and I recorded, uh, I, I told you I was thinking that eventually I might let people come back on. And you were like, this is the movie I want to do. Like you didn't even hesitate. Yes. And then I saw you put it up 
on your podcast of like, this is one of the choices and you put it up for one of your Patreon ones. So people got to vote on it. And I remember sending you a message saying, if you do it on your podcast, do you still want to do it on my show or do you want to pick another movie? And your response was, it ain't going to get the votes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that's hundred percent accurate. The thing is nobody has seen it. Right. Um, nobody really knows what it is. And that's why I, it's one that I, constantly like like i said even for your show you know i have not seen this it fits that bill perfectly nobody has seen this movie yeah and it's it's one that i i find that would be up a lot of people's sort of alley that you know are into these type of movies and things like you know jacob's ladder donnie darko movies like that this fits the bill yeah i i had not heard of it and i don't know how because you've got two of my favorite actresses in this film and I, when you mentioned it to me, I, I wrote it down. I was like, I don't even know what that is, but I put it down like this is OK. Adam's called this film. And it dawned on me when I sat down to watch this that I had never even bothered to watch the trailer for it. So I was going in fully blind, uh, which made it quite an interesting viewing experience. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, even with the trailer, I don't know. Did you watch the trailer after you saw the movie? No, I still haven't watched the trailer for it. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't you know, <laughs> this movie is so bizarre. Like even the trailer, you're still like, uh, okay, what is going on? <laughs> uh, you know, and yeah, even after I, I agree with you after rewatching it for the show because I haven't seen it in a couple of years. I just remember it really fondly. So, you know, when it came time to do the show, and I'm like, oh man, is this going to hold up? Uh, a, yes, I think it does. And B, the cast is so ridiculous in this movie. Yeah. It's yeah. a great cast. Well, let's go ahead and get into it then. Um, speaking of the trailer, because I always play a little bit of the trailer after I intro it. So you guys will hear it uh, about the same time I do. <laughs> We're talking today about 2005's The Jacket, written by Massey to Jaden, based on a story by Tom Bleeker and Mark Rosso, which is based on a novel by Jack London. Yes, that Jack London, uh, directed by John Maybury, starring Adrian Brody, Kiera Knightley, Chris Christopherson, and Jennifer Jason Lee. Is all right? Our Harmsteins. What are these? Those are dog tags, in case they get lost. Can I have them? Yeah, you can have them. Jump on in. You ever been to jail? He has retrograde amnesia. It was someone else I don't remember. Jack Starks, I sentence you to be committed to an institution for the criminally insane, where I hope the doctors in proper treatment can help you. I don't belong here. Neither of us can do anything about that now. Oh, please. tags you had lying around i'm jack starks jack starks is dead his body was found new year's day 1993 it's december 26 jack 1992 that's right i have to find out how 
gotta get back in there. There's a doctor, Becker. He was using some kind of behavior modification on his patients. So I always kick off with how do you describe this movie to someone who has not seen it? Like with me, all you had to do was say, this is the movie. It's your podcast, asshole. You have to watch it. But if you were actually trying to convince someone to watch it, how do you describe this to to someone? How do you sell them on on this movie? Uh, Well, I guess it depends on who you're talking to. But for most people in like in my circle or or film nerds or whatever you want to call it, I would say it's Jacob's Ladder meets One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Which is really interesting because I just for the first time watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest last weekend. So it was like back-to-back insane asylum movies on weekends for me. Uh, I was even thinking about that while I was watching this. Like The timing of me having just seen that movie was really weird to then see this one. Mm -hmm. Jacob's Ladder meets One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That's that's not – that's not wrong. (laughs) Right. Yeah, which is, I mean, which is just such a wild combination when you can think of it. But, you know, you got to figure this is at its core, a, like a psychological sort of thriller. And, and it's not, I don't want to call this a time travel movie, even though that does have things to do with it. It's, it's one of those like sort of reality bending movies. Yeah. It's, and and I see, I was thinking of it as a time travel movie going into it because that was all I knew about it because that was the category for your podcast. When you put this movie up, you picked it as a time travel movie. So I was going into it thinking it was a time travel movie and that doesn't happen until like 30 minutes, almost a third of the way into the film. And I was like, did Adam just like, was he screwing with people by picking this? Is this like a big joke? But then no, it's not. <laughs> right. No, it, it definitely does happen. But at the same time, it, it's. Not in any way you think it's going to, and it's not the big grandiose sort of time travel affair. It's it's a way that he can't change anything that's happened to him in his past, and right. he also really can't change anything that's going to happen to him in his future. His fate can't be changed, but it's what he can do with the information he bring, brings back from the future to sort of help other people. Yeah, that's, that's a, a good way of putting it. Um, so for those who are not familiar with this film, because as Adam said earlier, m- most people aren't, the IMDb description of this movie is a Gulf War veteran is wrongly sent to a mental institution for insane criminals where he becomes the object of a doctor's experiments and his life is completely affected by them. I mean, that's not inaccurate. Yeah, but it's missing <laughs> definitely some parts of the film. <laughs> yeah, that's a very sort of uh, uh, idiot's guide sort of copy for it. It's <laughs> There's, there, you know, the thing, it's such a small story, too, and a small self-contained movie, and it, it doesn't take place in many different locations. It, it's very sort of character-based, a lot of close-up camera work to really di- sort of get you into the character focus of it. And even dealing with the ideas of time travel time travel and regret and loss and everything, it's still a very small sort of poignant story. Yeah. So what is your history with this movie? This Again, this came out in 2005 and somehow just completely evaded my radar. And I've talked to a couple of people since I saw it, and one of them had heard of it, but nobody else knew anything about it. How did you find this movie? I saw the trailer for it on I couldn't tell you what movie it was because this was back when like the Warner Independent was really gearing up. and Right. 
they're releasing these kind of oddball movies, but still had, you know, sort of notable cast to them and a little bit bigger budget than your typical independent film. And uh, the trailer just kind of fascinated me because of the look of it. And then I, I completely forgot about it until I saw it to rent at uh, a local video store. And I was like, all right, I'll check it out. And uh, yeah, I was hooked, man. Like right away. I'm like, this movie is fucking really good. I can't believe nobody has seen this and flash forward. (laughs) how many odd years later and still nobody has seen this. Yeah. And especially as you said, with that cast, I mean, Adrian Brody was coming off of his Oscar win for this one. Um, you know, as Akira Knightley is one of my all time, just favorite actresses, especially more contemporary, but Jennifer Jason Lee is also one of my favorite actresses. And when I saw the cast line, I was like, how, how were these two women in a film? And I love each of them respectively. How did I miss that? They did something together. Everybody did. Don't take it yeah. out. Don't feel bad. Don't feel bad. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> you know, and it's funny you put it that way too. I mean, this was what, maybe a year or two removed from his Oscar win. So he was still kind of like a hot deal, at least in the way that a former Oscar winners typically are. Um, then he kind of went the Cuba Gooding Jr. route where he did like one great Oscar movie and then a couple just kind of bland, weird movies and then nothing. Um, <laughs> but hey, now yeah, that's that's not fair. Cuba Gooding Jr. did some uh, really bad movies, which is why he disappeared. I mean, he did you know Daddy Daycare and uh, uh, Rat Race and a couple others. Brody just kind of has just faded away. I think is the better way to put it. Yeah, that's fair. I guess that's fair. But yeah, I mean, and it's it's really slick looking. Like the cinematography on this movie is absolutely fantastic. I love the look of this movie. I love to where you know in the in the present of the movie, everything's really dull grays and blues tone to everything. And in the future, everything's real bright and shiny and has a lot of, you know, color pops to it and everything. It's just a really smart way to sort of delineate between the two times. And the cast is great. The score is great. Everything about this movie. I, I, I just, I'm sort of dumbfounded that it never caught on. Like even as a cult hit, it, it's never really found its audience. Yeah, and I especially noticed that um, in one of his trips to the future, he ends up taking a trip to the very uh, same asylum that he is incarcerated in. And in the present, it's, as you said, kind of grimy and, and the, the the blues and, and greens uh, hues to it. And in the future, like I noticed like there's co- the door is painted blue and the walls have red spots on them. And it's like it's very colorful. Yeah, it shows the same office that Chris Christopherson has shown in in his time that now Jennifer Jason Lee's in. And it's got a bright red chair. The curtains are drawn and the sun is pouring through and everything. It's just a really neat sort of artistic flair to it to, to really, like I said, sort of designate what time you're supposedly in in the movie. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned the, the close-up shots. I mean, I think that's an understatement. There are many, many visual shots in this, especially – so. Brody's character uh, is put through the treatment that he responds to, I guess, as IMDb put it, is he is uh, given a a diet of a drug concoction and then placed in a morgue drawer, I guess, as a sort of sensory deprivation type treatment. Um, Mm -hmm. And when he's in the drawer, the camera is very close on his eyes and and his face and such. But that's not the only time that the director does that. There's like, there are times where the camera is really close on somebody's mouth or somebody's forehead or different parts. It's it's when he uses the close-up shots, it's almost never just a close-up of the entire face. 
And when I finished watching the movie, I was like, I need to see what else this director has done. Have you looked into the director? Yeah, nothing. He's uh, done a ton. Of, he did a ton of music videos, especially yeah. before this. And then he's done some television since then. Um, but before this, he did music videos for Boy George and Sinead O'Connor and the Cranberries. And I, I, I love the Cranberries. So I pulled up oh, the sure. video that he directed. And half of the music video is close-ups on reflections in people's eyes. And I was like, okay, so he's got a motif going on here. <laughs> I mean, the Shane O'Connor video, nothing compares to you. It's her face, the full screen, that's it. Right, and that's one that he directed. Uh, yeah, and it's just, I don't know if he, maybe he didn't want to branch off into film, or or just he likes the sort of the, the medium of TV and music videos more than film. But I'm very surprised that he didn't get more work maybe after this just even on a stylistic aspect well i mean as you said very few people seem to have heard of this movie and when i was doing my research and prepping everything for the show i kind of see why it sits at 44 percent at rotten tomatoes it sits at 44 percent at metacritic which, now which it does it, yeah it does have a 73 percent audience score which means people who post to uh, Rotten Tomatoes as users like it a lot more than the critics did. So as always, I tried to pull in some critical reviews. These do mention a couple of things that I kind of want to chat about, but you know we can use them sure. as a jumping off point or nothing. Uh, the negative review, unfortunately, comes from Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times. Uh, and Ebert writes, the movie, taking its cue from Jack's deep weariness and depression, trudges through its paces as if it were deep and meaningful, which I am afraid it is not. It involves two or three time paradox tricks too many to take seriously as anything other than a plot crafted to jump through all the temporal hoops. I was reminded of Jacob's Ladder, also about a traumatized vet who descends into the abyss between the real and the imagined. Right, which I, I don't think is necessarily, well, let's put it this way. I find it an unfair review. In the fact that a lot of reviews I've also read for this are like, oh, it doesn't make any sense. It's too thin of a plot. It's too this, too that. It's about fucking time travel. <laughs> makes sense, which isn't real, which could be anything. It's a tool to make any kind of story you want. And it just so happens that time travel is used in this film as a small personal character story. Right. It has, there's no grandiose effects, there's no flashy you know, time machine or, or DeLorean or any of that. It's just what this one guy feels that he needs to do before he dies. No. And in fact, I noticed that, that even like when he disappears from the future to kind of come back to his body in the past, it's, it's always just a cut of him being there and a cut to a reaction, usually from Kira Knightley and then a cut back to emptiness. You know, they don't even have him fade out or disappear. He just he's there one second and he's gone the next. And it's a simplistic thing. But it, as you said, it's not really a flashy visual effect. It's just it, it communicates the fact that he's gone. Yeah, I, I think it's just as effective, if not more. All right. Because well, the if there was big flashy effects with him sort of turning into a ball of light or fading away a la like the Avengers Endgame or any of that shit, <laughs> it, it would it would ruin the movie. Right. No, I, yeah, I agree. I agree. On the positive side, so we're not just focusing on the negative. There is something uh, Ebert brought up that I'll bring up a little later, but we'll come back to that. Uh, on the positive side, Kevin Williamson of the Chicago Tribune, so still in Chicago, just the other side of town. Uh, Williamson writes, along the way, Stark finds out that not everyone is as they seem. A lesson we all could learn from the jacket. At this point, you'll groan a bit and say to yourself, oh, man, this is just memento with a dumber, skinny guy. Just be patient. 
Brody turns in another fine performance. You might not realize it's as good as it is until you find yourself wanting to give him a good shake and say snap out of it. His understated style takes you inside. You aren't just watching him. You're with him. I agree. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I I think um, it is sort of the understated, muted sort of way of speaking and the way of acting and his sort of reactions at Adrian Brody. It kind of does in everything, but he does it in this. And I think it absolutely sort of services the story and the character more. Yeah. Way. If he was a raving lunatic or just super excitable all the time, then again, it, it would make the movie sort of less than it is. It, it's, it is the understated nature of everything that, that appeals to me for about this movie. It, it reminded me to some degree, although, uh, Willis does kind of go over the top crazy in a couple of scenes, but it kind of reminded me of 12 monkeys in how subdued he is with the time travel element. Yeah. I think that's very accurate as well. And, and, and in some ways, uh, the sort of, uh, plays on color tone and everything is very 12 monkeys ish as well. Yeah. Yeah. Especially the, the blue and green kind of hues to the, the when they're looking at the grim stuff. I mean, that was, that was the response I, I gave to my girlfriend when we finished watching it was, it, it, it is a very cute movie, but grim. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, I never walk away from this movie. Even with the, unfortunately, I do feel the tacked on sort of fade to light happy ending is a little unnecessary. Right. But in a way, I'm, I'm glad it is too, because it, it also just sort of sets home the fact like, oh no, you, he's still going to die. He can't escape his fate. Well, yeah, I mean, he's dead this, at that point. Yeah, this is just him. <laughs> making sure what he tried to do was successful folks. We aren't particularly spoiling that because we also should tell you he dies five minutes into the movie. <laughs> if, I mean, if that, I if, mean the, the first real lines of dialogue, I mean, there's background noise and stuff, but the first real lines of dialogue the audience gets is his monologue saying I was 27 years old. The first time I died. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, him dying is not a, a particularly huge spoiler. What I did find funny about that ending, since you brought it up, um, and I'm I'm hoping you picked up on this too, because I, it's it's unfortunate, but I just couldn't help but laugh out loud at it. Is you have that that fade to light and the song all the time in the world plays. Uh-huh. Are you familiar with that song? Uh, no, not especially. Okay, it was written for a James Bond film. What one? <laughs> I have to look it back up. I had it. I had it pulled up. It's, it's performed by Louis Armstrong, and it's and it's a, a James Bond film, which is funny because uh, Daniel Craig is in this movie a year before he becomes James Bond. Yeah, that's that's one that while watching it today, I was like, oh my god, I completely forgot Daniel Craig is in this movie. Yeah. I one hundred percent forgot, and he's and now seeing him with the dyed black hair and stuff, it just looks so silly. Like, like you're like, oh, no, you're blocked. But still, he he turns in a really good sort of manic in a way performance. He's real jittery. He's real sort of like you you get you kind of feel bad for Daniel Craig's character too in the fact that once uh, Jennifer Jason Lee sort of reveals to Adrian Brody the truth behind his psychosis, and Adrian Brody sort of throws it back at him. You're like, oh, yeah. that was a move. Yeah, um, it was composed for on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Oh, well, there you go. That's why I don't fucking know it. Right. <laughs> the one movie, the Bond movie nobody really knows. Yeah. yeah um, it, just, it, it, 
it cracked me up because, as I said, you know, it's a James Bond. It's known for being a James Bond song, and you've got Daniel Craig in this. The next year, Casino Royale will come out, and he will take on the mantle of James Bond. But you you mentioned him. The, the other thing that I noticed in this that I, I even wrote down in my notes is it reminded me a lot of his performance in Infamous, um, which is it, it was overshadowed by Capote, but it was another Truman Capote movie um, with Toby Jones playing Capote and Daniel Craig plays the the convict that's in prison that, you know, that, that Capote is writing in cold blood about. And Craig's performance in that movie was spectacular. And this movie kind of reminded me on this, although this one's a lot more lighthearted and kind of silly as opposed to being this much darker person in, in, in infamous. Yeah, I could see the comparisons of that too. I've I've only seen Infamous once, but yeah, I, I remember uh, really thinking Daniel Craig sort of hit it out of the park with that one. That movie, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, because of Capote coming out with Philip Seymour Hoffman, sort of got lost in the in the yeah. wake of that. But I think Infamous is actually a pretty decent Capote movie. My take on it, not to spend too much time talking about that movie, but my take on it was it was a movie that was saved through its supporting performances. I didn't think Toby Jones's Capote was anything special, but you have uh, Sandra Bullock playing uh, Harper Lee, and right around the time that Harper Lee exits the story, Daniel Craig comes in. And it's like it's those supporting performances that really powered that movie through. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. But I I liked his performance here. Um and you're right that when it's when it's when he first reveals why he's there you do kind of i mean uh you know i'm I'm twice divorced i can understand wanting to kill an ex-wife 30 times (laughs) i I definitely get that right there with you (laughs) But, but but then when the truth about his condition comes out that when she left him he isolated himself from the world for two months and was, you know, practically starving himself. And that's why he's there. Like I felt sympathy for that character until Brody turns around, as you said, and kind of throws it in his face. And it is a dick move. It's a total dick move. It's a total dick move. But at the same time, I like it because it also shows that Jack Starks, Adrian Brody, he's not an infallible character at all. No, he's kind of a psychopath too. Like even when he's in the, you know, the future and he confronts, you know, the, the guy who used to be the orderly in the basement and the way he confronts, you know, Chris Christopherson outside the church, which told me wrong, Chris Christopherson and that orderly are pieces of shit. Their characters are terrible. Right. But he's almost taking sort of pleasure and glee in, in scaring them and, and haunting them, which is ultimately one of my favorite parts of the movie when he gets pulled out of the drawer and he tells Chris Christopherson, you know, all those guys and me, we haunt you. And he's laughing and crying at the same time. You're like, oh, yeah, he's kind of getting off on this a little bit. But the truth is that when you see Chris Christopherson in the future, that he is haunted by those people. He's initially presented as kind of this piece of shit doctor who's putting he's, who's torturing his patients. And the feeling I got when we get that scene of him in the future is it wasn't torture. He was legitimately trying to help them. He thought yeah. this was a way and he is haunted by the failure of what happened. Oh, no, absolutely. He thought he was doing right. He thought what he was doing would help them, even to the point to where, you know, Kira Knightley reads back the interview that they had with him after he got busted for doing what he was doing. He said, well, I was trying to create a womb-like scenario for these patients. Right. Like, he literally thought it was something that would maybe snap them back into reality and fix them. And I think that's an interesting choice because it could have been – they very easily could have made him the over-the-top villain, and instead they, they go out of their way to add a scene in that, that really gives him sympathy and depth. I agree. He, he could have been exactly the mustache-twirling 
sort of mad scientist who's you know shutter islanding this yes that's but that's it, exactly you know. what i was thinking of was that movie that's a great point of view yeah yeah, I mean, I I thought Christofferson was an. I mean, a, a Daniel Craig was a great part of the cast. I think Chris Christofferson was a wonderful part of the cast. Um, on the on the female side, Kira Knightley. I can't think, and I I should have looked it up, but have you ever seen her in another movie where she's intentionally doing an American accent like that? Not off the top of my head, no. And, and I will I will say about her accent in this, it's not bad. Uh, you know, I think she did a good dessert good service to herself by deepening her voice yeah that's that's exactly it was when she first started talking i was like did they dub her with someone else and then i realized that that's exactly it she was lowering her voice as part of the process of doing an american accent i thought it was a really smart move yeah me too i thought i thought it was damn near a flawless uh, an american accent i mean of course knowing kira knightley and and, and knowing not personally i, I mean i wish but knowing <laughs> <laughs> and hearing her natural accent for as long as we've heard it, um, it's a little jarring at first. And, and you know, you might pick up on a, a couple inflections uh, just because you've heard her natural voice so many times. But, yeah, it's it's almost perfect. Yeah, there were a couple of words that I noticed it on here or there, but I'm also not the type to usually criticize. I mean, I, I, I've heard you dog on it numerous times on your podcast. I liked Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins for many years. It wasn't until the last four or five years that I realized so many people were dogging on his accent. It's so bad. <laughs> but it's so part of the charm of that movie. <laughs> I, no, I agree. Let's put it this way. If he wasn't doing that, then it wouldn't be as successful. And I mean, it's it anybody but Dick Van Dyke. So it, I, I mean, I, I take it as it is. It takes something like Kevin Costner um, in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, where the, the the accent is completely inconsistent, where I really then have to be like, oh, that's bad. Or Carrie Ells and Saw to talk about someone else who played Robin Hood before. Yeah. Carrie <laughs> Ells and Saw, his accent is one of the worst I've ever heard. That's I'll, I'll give you that one. Yeah. Yeah. But I thought her performance in this was really it wasn't uh, on one hand. It wasn't I mean, it certainly wasn't like anything we'd seen at the time. Um, I think the 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 depression and the sorrow that filled this character, we do see from her again later on in Atonement. Um, but in this movie, her performance, I I, I liked it quite a bit. I agree. I thought it was very believable. And, and the fact of the matter is that they, they took sort of the time and care without over really doing it and over dramatizing and over explaining it uh, to show why she is the way she is and how she became who she become. There's no real other than when Adrian Brody goes and visits her as a child. There's no flashbacks. There's no, you know, show of burns on her or anything like that it's it's just simply she ended up this way because of her upbringing and it doesn't really get into it too much right but it presents it in a really curious way like yeah. she stops to help him so she's obviously a good person but then when she's uh going into the other room and he inter tries to introduce himself her line was uh i wrote it down even i may I, let's not do introductions i may want to help you tonight but i don't want to know you right which I, it was just a great line, by the way. Yeah. Great line. Great character beat. And and the thing is, what's so good about it, there's not much more to it than that. She's just, she, she yeah, she wants to help him. She, you know, it might be on a subconscious level because she recognizes him, maybe, or even on a, on a personal level, like another lost soul like she is or whatever. But she doesn't want to really get entangled with anybody else. She doesn't want her, anybody else's crazy to match her crazy. Yeah. 
No, yeah, I mean that's that, yeah, and I, but I I love that that's you know this it's just this intriguing element of who is this person who would help someone else but then doesn't want to get to know them at all, you know, like what made her that way. So when we find out later on, it doesn't have to be a flashback. It doesn't have to be heavy handed. The audience is asking the question, and so it's a nice bit of resolution without having to waste a lot of story beat on it. I agree, and and. It- you said it perfectly. The audience is answering, asking the questions, and they answer it very directly, very quickly. Yeah, you know, and 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 it's kind of refreshing. It, there's not a lot of sort of give and take between the two. She, they're both kind of out there, who they are, and, and what type of people they are. Yeah. There, there's they take away the sort of discovering each other in a relationship, and set it aside, at least in the stereotypical way, and set aside to further the plot more. Well, and, and, and I was already curious at that point in the movie, because as the audience member, we've seen uh, this character shut into the morgue drawer, and we've seen him freaking out, and we've seen these weird reflections in his eyes. We've seen some flashbacks back to when he was in Iraq, and then suddenly it's this pristine scene, and I assumed it was a flashback, and I assumed this was going to give us context of what was going on now, and then you find out later in that scene that it's 2007, when the main story is set in 1993. And I was just like, wait, what? What is going on here? Like, what? Mm-hmm. And and the, one of the things the movie doesn't try to explain, which I love it for, because too many movies would feel the need to explain this, is why on earth would this process cause him to travel forward in time to that specific place, to that specific person in that specific year? And we never get an answer for that, which, we, we, frankly, we don't have a reason to ask it other than just asking you know why, but the movie itself doesn't give us a reason to ask that. I think that's a very smart approach to it because then it doesn't have to answer it. I agree. I completely agree. And, and I think that's, you know, as I said, with time travel movies in general, um, there are certain ones that when they take the time to try to explain the reasoning behind it all, it gets so muddled and lost in it to where it sort of takes you out of it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, I don't need a reason. My my favorite re- example always being, you know, as much as I, I don't care for the movies as much now, Austin Powers, just basically saying, don't worry yourself about it. Just enjoy the movie, looking at the camera, winking and let's move on. You know, like that that was cleverly handled. <laughs> I agree. And another good example I can think of is the movie Looper with Bruce Willis and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Where yeah, a movie setting- that I'm mixed on. Yeah, I, I am very mixed on, too. But when Joseph Gordon-Levitt's trying to get Bruce Willis to explain it, he's like, it doesn't fucking matter. It's just time travel. Yes. Like, okay, yeah. well, that's enough. That's all. And, and that's, that's kind of how this movie approaches it as well. Um, mm-hmm. it, just enough to keep the audience curious, uh, but not to the point where they feel like they have to go out. I mean, I think it's a very tightly told story. I, I, I have some issues with it, which we'll get into in a second, but I think as far as like the, the progression of character and the advancement of the story, um, I, I think they, they really solidified it and, and there's not a whole lot of extraneous material here. Now, my understanding is there was a longer version of the sex scene, uh, that was cut because American audiences were uncomfortable with it. I, I was uncomfortable with it just because that was the one moment in the movie that just did not feel like it belonged. It did not feel like these people are on this quest to try and figure out how he dies and if there's anything they can do to save it. And, oh, let's stop and bone. I, I agree. I, I do think the it didn't need to go past sort of a lost soul friendship. They did not right. need to um, romantically involved. Because um, then it makes sort of the follow-up scene – you know, the last scene he has with her character kind of gross. Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's kind of gross. Have you seen um, Palm Springs? Mm-hmm. Didn't you guys you guys covered that on the podcast, didn't you? Um, yes, we did. It, but it it kind of reminds me of of that in that you know you you discover over, over the course of the the movie that uh, the main character, who's the actor's name, I'm suddenly going blank on Peralta from Brooklyn Nine Nine, um, that that he's slept with like everybody in the story at some point and then it's just a groundhog day things and nobody remembers it and suddenly when you realize it as an audience member it really kind of adds this creepiness factor to some of his relationships with other people in the movie absolutely absolutely um yeah that was probably that's probably my biggest problem with it that i've had since the first time i saw the jacket was i don't like let's put it this way if they would have kissed or even laid in bed together and sort of cuddled and slept and things like that. I wouldn't really had a problem with it. Right. Yeah. Um, but the fact that they took it to the the most obvious physical sort of situation that you can, uh, it, it yeah it it doesn't ruin the movie for me. But I do feel that's sort of the weakest uh, aspect of it. Right. It feels very unnecessary. It's not necessary to tell the story. It's not necessary to do for these two characters to really care about each other. And no, because she was already helping him at that point. So mm-hmm. what? What more did we get out of that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And then, like I said, with with him being so enamored with her as a child, it, it's sort of very uh, gross. <laughs> yeah, but I mean that scene aside, I think it's a very tightly told story. Which you know, there are many movies. I'm sure you have the same experience where you finish watching it and you go, "Yeah, that could have been ten minutes shorter." You know that that didn't oh, need this uh, extra scene here. Or that didn't need this piece of information here. And this one, other than the sex scene, I don't. I feel like as far as progression of character and advancement of story, I think it's very tightly told. I, I agree. It breezes by. I mean, it's almost two hours long. It's it's an hour and forty minutes around there, and it basically breezes by um it's very tight and like i said self-contained but yes that quick little 30 not even 30 seconds was unnecessary don't really address it again no no they give each other a kiss and then that's it yeah prepare to enter an immersive world of tragedies hauntings legends and folklore. Southern Gothic is an independently produced podcast documenting the rich history of the American South, stretching from the swamps of Louisiana to the shores of the Carolinas, deep into the mountains of Appalachia, and across the battlefields and earliest settlements of Virginia, guiding you through some of its darkest tales and eerie locations. Join us now on Southern Gothic, the podcast. So are you familiar with the concept of the bootstrap paradox? No. What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I'm a Doctor Who fan. So that's part of why I'm very aware of it is is one of the doctors has an introduction where he explains this concept to the audience. So just to paraphrase his explanation is say you're a big fan of like Beethoven and 
uh, you have access to a time machine and you go back in time uh, because you want to get his autograph on his sheet music and you discover that there is no Beethoven. Nobody has ever heard of him. So you copy the sheet music and get it out there so that his music is created and lives on. And then the question is, well, where did the music come from? Because if he never existed, you didn't have it to take back in time to put out there. Does that make sense? I mean, it, it, yes, but I didn't realize I should have taken hard drugs before this. <laughs> so that's the problem I have with this movie. And I end up having this problem with a lot of time travel movies. But specifically, she helps him in the future to get information that he needs. So he through that, he gets the information to help Jennifer Jason Lee. We didn't talk about her. She's awesome in this, too. Oh, um sick. He, he gets information to help her with this kid that she's helping. He gets the names that he then, as you said, gives to Chris Christopherson's character to kind of taunt him a little bit. And all of this, he gets all of this information from the future to take back to the past to keep time on track uh, or to try and get to the point where he can discover how not to die. But he does something in the past towards the end of the movie to change Kira Knightley's character's future. And so when he travels to the future that last time, she doesn't know him. Correct. So if she never helped him in the future, then how did he get that information into the past? Well, then now you're looking at the different sort of the splits from time continuum that happen in movies. Right. To where, but I, I guess the whole idea is no matter what you do in the future, you cannot change your personal present. So he's okay. able to do these things, but no matter what, he's still going to die. He could have just as easily gone back with that information and saved his own life and tried to possibly. But no matter what, he's going to slip on the ice. Somebody's going to bash his head in. Whatever's going to happen to him, he's going to die. Okay. And then he doesn't derail that. You're right. So that's that's a good point. I didn't think about it from that point of view. Because it's always, it's always bothered me in movies that try to take on time travel, how often they end up with that paradox thing. And like the, one, of the, one of the worst offenders to me that just bothers the, the shit out of me is the Harry Potter movie that deals with time travel. And there's, there's an event in there that happens uh, that the character sees, and then when it comes time for him to do it, he's, he's struggled with this through the whole story, but suddenly he can do it. And his, his excuse is I knew I could do it because I already had. And it's like, no, you saw yourself do it in the future. There's still supposed to be a step there where you learn how to do it. Right. Right. (laughs) But you're also worried about a movie that deals with kid wizards in fictional London. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Touche. I earned that one. I'll give you the (laughs) point for Adam. (laughs) But that, but that's my thing about like this movie and and some of the other sort of low key told sci fi movies and everything. The thing is, if you can go into it and believe part of it, but not the other part, then you're kind of doing yourself a disservice. Because if you could believe one part of a time travel movie, then all the other stuff is fine too. Because it's not real; it doesn't make sense when you boil it down. So you just kind of have to take it for what it is and go on sort of the storyteller's path and ride and the way they want to tell their version of a time travel movie this is just their version of it i find that if you start posing too many questions then then it sort of makes the whole thing infallible that's i kind of hate you for that but that's a a really 
logical <laughs> argument as far as like, I mean, I mean, and, and like I've used that same argument in other films. Like, you know, you're watching, like, I, I think I used it when we discussed Warcraft on the podcast that like people were like, well, this is unrealistic. And I'm like, you're watching a movie set in a fantasy world with magic and stuff. And you're saying that's unrealistic. And, and I've used that argument with superhero films. And you're kind of right to use it back against me at the point that you've bought into the time travel. You kind of have to go with the flow on some other stuff. If you're willing to accept that, then you kind of have to go in for in for everything. Yeah, you just have to take it at a story value. Like it's a story. It's just a fictional story. Yeah. And and, I mean, like you brought up Looper and it's not the time travel that I have a problem with in that movie as much as it is uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's chin. Oh, my God. (laughs) It is contacts. What the fuck? Let's take this really talented actor and try really hard to make him look like another actor that, frankly, he already kind of resembled and the audience would have bought into. Resembled it more enough. Like, he resembled him enough. Yeah. And and Joe Scorlevin's acting as young Bruce Willis is fucking spot on in that movie. Yeah, so we didn't need the makeup. (laughs) Let's give him a flat nose and a chin. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the things that I I liked about this film, just some of the little details that like, obviously you're not going to miss, like when um, Ted Casey is mentioned and there's this little laugh in the background almost every time his name is said. And like, Mm -hmm. that's a really nice touch. But like one of the things I noticed was when Jack travels back in time and relives the situation that actually got him incarcerated and finally sees what really happened that day in, in the, the past he's, you know, laying flat down in the snow, face down in the snow because he's been shot and he sees the gun on the road. And when it cuts back to him in the drawer, the gun reflection is in his eye as they, they kind of keep doing this reflection in the eye, the gun reflection in his eye, but there's snow on his cheek in the drawer. Yeah. And I was like, well, Jesus, that's brilliant. Well, yeah, just like at the, at the, his very last scene, you know, he's got blood on the back of his head. Well, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And well, but still, and she's like, well, I just got a little cut. So he still is having the effects of, of, of these, this travel happen to him, but it's not as sort of poignant, well, not poignant, but as extreme as it is in this exact same time or the time that it happened. So he right. can bring, these things sort of bring, come back with him or go forward with him. But, you know, a horrible head wound that he suffered in the past when he's in the future, it's just like basically a little nick on his on the back of his head. Well, and and I, I am not saying I interpret it this way because I think the movie's pretty straightforward with it. But you could almost argue that the ending may not be real. He may not have changed Jackie's life. He may, that may be him dying and imagining that whole last sequence. I, I agree with you. And I th- th- there's two ways to look at it. Now, if it is true and he did go to the future and see Jackie and she's happy. She's a nurse now. She has a relationship with her mom. And she has and a nice car. Things. She has a, yeah, she had a VW bug like, Ooh, I'm living on up. But uh, <laughs> if, uh, Now, if that is true, then that is sort of the bow on the ending and the bow on the movie. And it's like, Oh, it's feel good. Like she succeeded. You know, she's happy now. He did save her. Now, if it is just him dying, um, that drops this not in a bad way, but this drop this drops this movie on the depressing scale like ten times. Right, <laughs> like, it makes it so much more bleak. Which either way you look at it, not a bad ending. Now, if it is the bleak one, which I have thought about, uh, I don't mind it. But at the same time, 
man, how depressing. Yeah. Which it's a depressing film. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not, it's not, as I said, it was, it's a cute movie, but grim. <laughs> oh yeah. It's very grim. And you know, the thing is we, we did talk about it. We did mention how much, he, how much we liked his sort of muted performance, but fuck man, is Adrian Brody good in this movie? Yeah. I'm not the biggest Brody fan. Uh, and I loved him in this. I mean, I really thought this was a great performance from him because as you said, it could have been like jumping off the rails crazy and it would have fit the character, but it wouldn't it, it the the tone of the film, of the film. Yeah. yeah it's and it's I, a, I, just, I think he's fantastic in it man yeah yeah I, 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 one of my other favorite brody performances another time travel movie which is his tiny little performance in uh, midnight in paris as um well now i can't even remember what artist he plays but he has he has a, another one i haven't seen never seen it it's a Woody Allen film so you know a lot of people yeah, want to give it hate because it. of that but it. he's not yeah. in it and I think it's I think it's one of his best, especially more contemporary films. I love it, but I, it, you know, we I, I I think I brought it up one time I was on your show about that yeah. difficulty in separating the art and the artist. And at what point do you just say, "Fuck it, the artist is a bad person," but I'm still going to enjoy the art, you know? And it's it's a hard I, thing to do. Well, I, you know, it's funny. We've talked about that you and I at length on the time you were on our show, and I've talked about it with other people, and I, I've come to the conclusion. If the art is a direct reflection of the artist and sort of the things he's done, then I then fuck it. I can't I can't do it. Right. I, I would bring up like Roman Plansky or even Victor Salvo did the Cheapest Creepers movies, things like that. I can't watch those movies because they are they're so indicative of what their behavior in real life was. Um, so that's where I, I was sort of drawing the line. Okay. That, that's, and I think, I think what I walked away from our last conversation about that is there's not a solution to it. It's going to, every person has to decide for themselves. What yeah, that's going I, to be. I agree with that. I agree with All that. right. What have we not talked about with the jacket that you wanted to make sure we got in? Well, mainly the look of the jacket itself. Yeah. We've gotten 50 minutes in and not talked about the fact the jacket is a reference to a straight jacket to the extreme that that Brody's character is put into as part of this treatment when he's put into the sensory deprivation thing. That's what the title of the movie references. Um, and boy, it's a grisly looking thing. It a hundred percent is. And talk about, like we mentioned earlier, even like 12 monkeys esque, even the design of it, where it's got the holes on it to where they can insert the needles and there's blood stains around the holes and the neck collar where they still got it open. So they can put their fingers in to feel the pulse and the piss stains on the crotch right. of it. And yeah. I mean, it's so gross and terrifying looking, but so simplistic in its design that it's so effective. Well, and as I mentioned at the intro, um, this is originally the concept of this story comes from Jack London, like Call of the Wild Jack London. And he wrote uh, a novel uh, about a, a jacket like this uh, that he had heard about from a someone else who had been incarcerated. So the concept of the jacket, the way it looks the, the to- as a device of torment, is based in reality. Which is terrifying. Yeah. Which is terrifying. And the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, if you do any sort of a modicum of real research uh, for anybody who's listening or anybody out there, these sorts of not necessarily – psychotropic time travel well though i wouldn't necessarily not believe it but these sorts of crazy barbaric experiments happened all the time yeah at mental mental institutions and things like that and it just that that also adds a sense of sort of 
reality and believability into a science fiction movie. And I believe that's what makes good sci-fi. Well, and you you brought up the comparison of it with uh, Cuckoo's Nest, and and you know that also was based on reality. So I, I definitely think that that comparison is astute, and I, I I think it's horrifying at the same time because um, if not the events, you know, as you said, not time travel, but the the tone and the the instigating events are are very much based on things that could and have happened in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, so did you like the movie? I did. I did. Um, I, thought it, it I, is... I, was, I was fearful that I would be one of the few guests you've had on your show where you're like, yeah, I didn't really like it. Even in the cases where I didn't like it, I tend to have good conversations. I can only think of one episode that I've really had where it was a bad movie and a bad conversation. <laughs> um, the, no, oh, I say what? What was the movie? Oh, I'm not going to say. You go back and listen to the old catalog and see. <laughs> you're going to tell me off, Mike. <laughs> yes, I will. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, before we're done, we got a couple of games to play. You've been through these before, but it's been a while. Yeah. Uh, first up, we have the algorithm says this is a list of different movies that various algorithms say you will like because you liked the jacket. So this is kind of a lightning round of responses from you. Do you know these movies? Do you like these movies? Do you not like these movies? Do you not understand why they're connected to the jacket? All right. All right. First up, we have the 13th floor. Uh, I like the movie. I think it's connected to the jacket only in the fact that it's a sci-fi sort of reality bending movie. Right. I don't think it's anything like the jacket. I'd say the 13th floor is more in tune to like, even like the matrix right. or existence or something like that. But I, 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 I like the movie. God existence. I cannot believe you went there. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. All, right. All right. Um, frequency. Uh, I don't like the movie, uh, because <laughs> I don't like Dennis Quaid at all. Right. Um, He's one of those guys for me. Um, But I kind of get it as well as the sort of time warp, time bending aspect of the movie. And what's happening in the future, you can give information to sort of help things in the past. So I get it on that level. Okay. All right. Next up, stay. I don't know what that is. Uh, And I don't either. And I had it pulled up before we started to record. (laughs) I closed it out. Let me see if I can find it real quick because it showed up. There it is. Uh, It's uh, Ewan McGregor, Naomi Watts, a psychiatrist attempts to prevent one of his patients from committing suicide while trying to maintain his own grip on reality. Mark Forster. I got to see that movie now. (laughs) All right. Um, The Experiment. The one with Adrian Brody? Yes. The one with Adrian Brody. That's only on that because it's Adrian Brody. Probably, <laughs> but it yeah. was on several it, algorithms I checked. So yeah, it's Adrian Brody and Forrest Whitaker. And he's in a prison and they're experimenting on them. That's, that's the only way it's really related. Uh, that's one of those direct to DVD uh, sort of schlock, not really schlock. It's, it's not bad. It's a competently made movie, but it's not, it's nothing to write home about. Gotcha. Well, it's based on that, um, psychological study about the different, like t- taking all the people and saying you people are prisoners and you people are guards and seeing yeah. how people respond. Right. Yes. That's what I thought. Um, all right. The number 23. <laughs> I hate that movie, man. <laughs> you know, I knew yeah, that was going to be your response. <laughs> I want to like it a lot more than I do. But that being said, I do understand why people would say, if you like the Jackie, you might like number 23 uh, for a lot of the sort of mind fuckery and visual flourishes of it. Gotcha. Okay. The butterfly effect. <laughs> I got, now look, I don't mind the butterfly effect. I really like it a lot more with the sort of director's ending. 
Right. Oh, God, yes. Very, very dark into Sandman. See, I was expecting some bashing on Ashton Kutcher here. I like the butterfly effect. I think it's actually a pretty good time travel movie. I think it's actually a really good movie. I don't like Ashton Kutcher, but I think he's serviceable in it. Yeah. Um, I think he's the weakest link out of the whole cast, but it's still a pretty good movie. And I, I could see. Yeah, I think if you like the butterfly effect, you might like the jacket. Yeah, I can definitely see the connection between the two of them. All right. The Machinist. Uh, Okay. I like that movie. I think I want to like it more than I actually do. Okay. Um, It is quite a stellar performance from Christian Bale and Jennifer Jason Lee. It's the movie is really sort of a good psychological sort of thriller until the end. And it's, it's kind of a wet fart. I think that's, that's, it's been a while since I've seen it. I remember really liking it, but I also, I kind of think you're probably right about that. Two thirds are stellar. (laughs) You're like, all right. But I could see again, though, why that would relate to the jacket as well. If only just for visual flourishes as well. Yeah. I mean, shoot the, I mean, and obviously um, uh, Brody is not anywhere near that thin and gaunt, but there were definitely when there are times when his shirt is off that it's like, wow. um, Oh yeah. He was in. Yeah. And not not to the Christian Bale point, no. but still. Uh, okay, now's well, we got one more before it goes completely off the tracks. I think um, Primer. Uh, hmm. I've only seen it once. I remember thinking it was all right, only in the fact that some of the story beats. I, I don't. I wouldn't say that if you like Primer, you'd like the jacket or vice versa. All right, now we go off the tracks. Um, sure. K-Packs. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> That was what it, that look during the whole Kevin Spacey assance because there was that few years where like dude he was in everything and he was critical review critical acclaim for everything that was always my weakest one I think that movie is so fucking inherently just dumb on every level <laughs> all right and lastly the fountain I love the fountain okay interesting. Uh, yeah, I love it. I think that movie, uh, not only visually, is just impeccable. Um, it's the best Hugh Jackman performance that you could possibly get, I think. Um, it's one of my favorite Aronofsky films, and I the score alone just sets that movie above. I mean, it's on a whole other level. I was working for a, a, a – that was when I was still doing my kind of uh, uh, critical – uh, career, so I was working for a website and was sent a little snow globe and the soundtrack for the fountain. And I, it was probably two years after I got those that I finally got to sit down and watch the movie. And then they became like the most prized treasures I had. <laughs> great movie. That soundtrack, man. Yeah. All right. Lastly, we always end with a pop quiz for multiple choice questions based on the movie. Are you ready? Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> All right. Number one. Kira Knightley felt there was a contributing factor during her audition that helped her earn the role of a sickly alcoholic. What was it? A, she was. (laughs) Yes, food poisoning. (laughs) You didn't let me read my questions. One of the choices was she didn't audition. She's Kira fucking Knightley. (laughs) Yeah, she had. Accurate. (laughs) Yeah, she had uh, food poisoning when she went in for the audition and felt like that uh, that helped her get the role. Uh, number two, Adrian Brody went somewhat method for the film, spending time in isolation tanks and going on a protein diet, among other things. This method acting is most visible where in the film? A, the bruises on his ribs after his first time in the jacket are real because he bruised easily due to his diet. B, his meltdown inside the morgue drawer is real because of how much time he spent in there. 
C, his fatigue and fall at the end of the movie were real because he was so exhausted after putting in long days as Jack. Or D, his confrontation with 2007 Damon was real because the scene hadn't been written, so the actors just improvised it. Uh, it's B. It um, is B, yeah. To the point to where when they were not shooting, he would stay in the meat drawer. And yes. they would keep they would keep the camera on his face. I would melt down too if I was making that choice, but that's that was his choice. That wasn't something the director close, asked. You, could, you couldn't close that fucking door on me. I, I would literally <laughs> You couldn't. There'd be a solid wall of shit blocking it. Uh, uh, Ryan Reynolds Barry didn't show up in the algorithm says, but it has, you know, that in common, I guess, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> uh, number three, as always, the actors appearing on screen, weren't the only ones considered for the roles. Who else was considered for the lead role of Jack Starks, a Joseph Gordon Levitt, B Colin Farrell, C Leonardo DiCaprio or D Mark Wahlberg. B and D trick question. Damn you. Yes. <laughs> uh, Colin Farrell. I could see it wouldn't have been as good, but Mark Wahlberg in this role. No, Mark Wahlberg would have been terrible. It would have been terrible. In fact, the whole scene where he goes and sees her as a little girl had just been like an SNL Mark Wahlberg thing. You know, yeah. <laughs> hey, say hello to your mother for me. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that that was the gag. Yeah. That would have been terrible. Uh-huh. All right, last one. Kira Knightley inaccurately claimed this film marked her first nude scene while promoting the film. Apparently, she forgot what previous project from her filmography. A, The Hole in 2001. B, Dr. Zhivago in 2002. C, Love Actually in 2003. Or D, King Arthur in 2004. Oh, this is kind of a trick one. Because um, two of them are very close to each other. Now I just got to figure out which one was first. Well, I gave you the years. <laughs> yeah, they're in, they're in the order that they came out. I don't trust you. No, uh, okay. I'm going to go with the hole. Yeah, the hole was actually her first nude scene. She was apparently only like 17 at the time. No, dude. No, she was 15. Oh, 15 at the time. Yeah. No, so, she, yeah, she, she was 17 when she did the first Pirates movie. She was 17 when she did the first. Pi- okay, so I have to take her off of my list of actresses I adore now because now it's kind of creepy. <laughs> well, no, that's all right. <laughs> I mean, you know, she was 18 while promoting it. So, <laughs> but yeah, no, she was only 15 in the hold. Cause I remember there being like a thing about it. where like, is this even okay? And the answer is no, it's not. No, no, it's really not. <laughs> All right, man. Where can people find you? What do you want to promote? I am on a weekly show. Uh, we are nearing our third year anniversary. It's called Double Edge Double Bill. We are part of the ESO network, but you can find us anywhere you can find podcasts. Uh, the basic gist of it is me and my uh, co-host Thomas, who has been on your show twice, um, Thomas Mariani, that is. We uh, play a little game, and we end up picking one good and one bad movie to review that uh, sort of encapsulates uh, the topic for that episode of uh, the last one we just did we did uh eddie murphy movies oh, and the good movie was the netflix dolomite is my name and the bad one was disney's the haunted mansion you could very gone good much worse could have gone much worse i had the good choices this time and uh i will say dolomite is my name is a hundred percent a good choice it's so worth checking out yeah um, and i'm and then, glad you said that because i just was i was watching earlier today trailers for coming to america too and i was like i don't want to watch this eddie murphy hasn't made a good movie in years and until you just brought up dolomite is my name i had forgotten about that but he has that's a fantastic movie yeah uh, and then we're also on uh patreon for anybody who's interested it's patreon.com slash dedb pod we only ask for a buck a month and that also lets you access 
um, you know, top 10 list commentaries. We're doing a March Madness thing uh, next month of the greatest movie villains where there's five of us and we all came to the table with five choices and our Patreons picked two. And we're just going to sort of discuss it and have a, it's going to be a long, long episode. But <laughs> uh, and then I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Atom or Adam, A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. If you want to follow me on there, you're more than welcome to. It's mostly going to be pictures of either my kid, my dogs, or any random painting I've done. All right. So I meant to ask at the top of the show, I'm going to go ahead and throw it here at the end uh-huh. uh, because I, I know from listening to the episodes, what I think the answer to this question is, but what is the worst of the bad movies you've had to watch for your podcast? Oh man, there are so many bad ones. You know, uh, one of the worst that I can think of was, uh, probably, Oh man, I don't know. We just did chairman of the board with carrot top, <laughs> but, uh, Snoop Dogg's hood of horror is probably the worst one that I can think of uh, just on a sort of racial insensitivity and offensiveness level alone. It is atrocious. I just, I still remember the country bears just breaking oh. in to the point that you, you, oh. you couldn't even finish the episode. Really? I, I <laughs> you were kind of checked out for the last 10 minutes or so of it. <laughs> I've had to block that fucking movie. And Thomas tried to bring it up on the Eddie Murphy episode. Cause the haunted mansion obviously has to do with the ride from Disney world. And I just totally just let it like just zoom over my head. I didn't even address it. I'm not, <laughs> not getting into it. All right, man. I really, this was a great one to, as I said, I enjoyed it. I'm, I'm glad I watched it. It's something I had not heard of until you brought it up. So, uh, you're, you're two and O for the show now, cause you were on for, for dark city and now this, so I can't wait to see what you pick next. Oh, I got to come up with something. <laughs> So that does it for this week, but you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. Share your thoughts about The Jacket or other sci-fi time travel movies, or maybe tell me about a movie you'd like to come on the show and talk about. You can find me at Talon Hess on Twitter and Letterboxd, that's T-A-L-N-H-E-S-S, or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter on Facebook, where at Have Not Seen This Podcast, or email me at have not seen this at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's episode. You say it. I can do this. This is impossible. The two men fighting for the championships tonight are brothers. This podcast is available through all major podcast sources. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, as is just sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Adam Thomas for providing this week's conversation. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This. Be kind to each other.